Okay, First Samuel chapter nine. You want to remember what we were talking about last week? Jennifer does. Jennifer does. <laughs> 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 I don't even remember what she said. No. <laughs> we were pretty distracted yesterday. Yeah, we were fairly distracted last week. And so we talked about was was it wrong for them to want a king? Yeah. And we found that there were require or not requirements, but provision in the law for there being a king. There was prophecies indicating that there would be a kingdom, and for Jesus to be having the role of Messiah, then he was going to be having the role of king as well. So God had already told ahead of time that there would be a king, um, made provision for it in the law. But the problem was that they demanded a king. And they said, uh, anyone remember the, the reasons they said for wanting a king? Okay, they wanted to be like everyone else. They wanted to be governed like the world was, right? Who, who was their ruler before the king? God. Okay, God was their ruler. And so they said, we don't want to follow God. We don't want him leading us. We don't want God to be our king. We want a man to be our king. We don't want to do it God's way. We want to do it man's way. And so that's the, the parallel for our Christian life, right? Is that we are supposed to follow the Lord. We're supposed to uh, be led of the Spirit. But a lot of times we fall into the trap of uh, wanting to live like the world does. We want to play by the world's rules, seek after uh, the world's priorities, uh, uh, have the, the things that the world says is important, and put God last. And so the one thing they said is they wanted to be like all the nations around them. What was another reason they said they wanted a king? Draw a blank on this one. Okay. So they said they wanted someone that would be physically there to lead them in battles and judge them, right? And so they said, okay, we're, we're tired of looking to God to lead us even though God had led them to victory over their enemies a multitude of times, right? Miraculously, they said, no, we want a man to lead us and fight our battles for us. Then, let's see. The one reason we touched on it a minute ago was that uh, Samuel's sons were wicked. They said, Samuel, you're old, you're going to die. And if you leave your sons in your place to lead us, then they are wicked. And so we need a different form of leadership. Now, I don't know how much we touched on this last week, but that in and of itself, if you think about it for a minute, is kind of dumb. Because you have a succession, Samuel, then his sons, right? If you have a king, what happens? Who becomes king after the king? Normally the son. So what's the guarantee that the king's son's not going to be wicked just like Samuel's son's? 
just because there's a different title, does that mean that the sons are not going to be corruptible like Samuel's sons were? So what they should have done is seek God and say, God, our leadership is wicked. God, we need you to give us new leaders or purify the leaders that we have, right? And say, God, we are your people. You are leading us. And so we need you to put the right men in place or judge the men that are in place, right? And instead of that, they said, we want men to lead us because men were doing such a wonderful job of it at the time, right? And so it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And also they were saying that um, Samuel was old and was dying. His sons were wicked. And they were using that as an excuse basically to do what they wanted to do anyway. And that's something that's extremely common now is that people will point to wickedness or corruption within spiritual leaders, and they will use that as a reason to turn their back on God or to do whatever they want to do, right? You talk to a lot of people today, uh, try to witness to folks here in Ireland, and they'll point to the corruption within the Catholic Church and the candles in the Catholic Church, and they'll say, I want nothing to do with God because, essentially, Samuel's sons are corrupt, Right? So there's corrupt leadership. We're blaming God, and so we're going to do our own thing. We're going to use it for an excuse to reject God, reject his ways, and do man's thing. And it's not just the Catholic Church. All of us can be guilty of that because we're hurt because somebody else hurt us. And then we cast that, we we project that onto God, right? I was hurt by man, you know. And so because I was hurt by a man, now I'm going to try to do things the way that I think they need to be done rather than seeking God and drawing close to him and getting their eyes off of men, get it on him, right? Mm-hmm. And so they went the opposite way. And so they, they were saying, okay, we want a king. We want to be like all the nations around us. We want to do our own thing. Even though God has fought our battles, God has provided for us, um, we're not going to seek him to uh, give us godly leadership. We're going to just completely throw off any form of godly leadership and let man rule over us. And we all know how that goes, right? But another thing we talked about last week uh, with the idea, I know we got on this just a minute ago, with the idea that it wasn't wrong for them to want a king, that God had made a provision for it, that their problem was they wanted a king right then, that we talked about, I believe David was the king that God had for them all along. That if they would have just waited a little bit, God already had a program, he already had a plan in place, He had it under control. They just got in a hurry, right? And so Samuel was the one that anoints David as king. So Samuel doesn't die before David's anointed king. And really what that tells me is that Saul was unnecessary. And now God did use Saul. Uh, God is going to say in part of the passages that we're in tonight that Saul would be used to begin driving out the Philistines. David finishes it, right? But even with that, does Saul have much of a, an effect on the Philistines? Who does most of the fighting against the Philistines? David does, right? Who does Saul seek after? Who does David, or Saul try to fight? David. And so Saul is doing all these other things. David is fighting the battles, and people are praising David long before Saul's ever out of there. So... I wonder how it would have looked had they not demanded a king and maybe God would have came to Samuel and would have said, Samuel, you're going to die. Your sons are wicked. 
I've raised up a man after mine own heart to take over when you're gone. Kind of like he did Eli with Samuel, right? And raise up David. David is the one that starts rallying the troops behind him. There could have been a David and Goliath moment without Saul. The Philistines could have put the people in a corner and all of them be afraid. They had no leadership from Saul. Saul was quaking under his little tree, right? And so David comes and says, is there not a cause? And he came, fought the battle, and all of the people rallied behind him. They could have done that without Saul. And so Saul wasn't necessary in there, but God did use Saul in David's life to build and to grow David. And I do wonder if the whole situation between Saul and David put safeguards in place in David's life so that he didn't become like Saul. Oh, I'm sure. I think that happens sometimes that people come into our lives and cause issues and it helps us to take notice of those tendencies in our own lives yeah. and keep them in check. Oh, yeah. And so I wonder if maybe that happened, mm-hmm. but that's just me speculating. Yeah. But I fully believe that David was going to be king either way mm-hmm. and that God already had that in place because he said it was going to be the line of the tribe of Judah, yeah. right? That Judah was going to be the ones that ruled. And Benjamin was just a placeholder. Yeah. You know, the tribe of Benjamin, Saul was just a placeholder to placate the people, to satisfy them until David came along. Yeah. It also worked as a great illustration for us, though, because as we're going to see here today, that God gives them what they want. He gives them what they're desiring. And so if they were to sit down and write down a list, I don't know if you've ever done this for anything, but if you sit down a, and write down yourself a list of all the qualities that you want in this situation, all of, uh, if you could uh, plan all of this out, what you're wanting the situation to pan out as being, and you put a list of everything, right? That's kind of what they're doing with Saul here. Okay, we want a king like all the nations around us. We want a uh, a man that's going to be able to lead us in battle and inspire our people and do all of these things. And at the bottom of the list was anything to do with God. They weren't concerned about the things of God. And so God gives them a man that is head and shoulders taller than everyone else, that is good looking, that uh, comes from a wealthy family, that uh, fits the part by outward appearances, right? Right. And so they look at him and says, yes, that's what a king looks like. But they pay no attention to the inward man. They pay no attention to his heart and how he actually leads. I said last week that he was uh, chasing after donkeys. But whenever God brings them a king, he gives them a shepherd. Mm-hmm. And so there's a big difference. And um, that just, I don't know, that just kind of struck me just that, and I'm getting ahead of myself here, that this is how we're introduced to Saul. That Saul is the one that was chasing his father's donkeys around everywhere. And I think it's a bit of a parallel for Israel at the time because they were stubborn, they were stiff-necked, they were rebelling, they were running away from God. And so Saul's introduced by his donkeys running away, rebelling, running away from him. And he's going and trying to gather them up, right? And uh, so they're not acting much. They're not acting very sheepish at the moment. So anyway, let's go ahead. We're going to read a few verses here in chapter 9. I'm planning on covering quite a bit of ground, so I'm not going to read a lot. But I'm going to kind of summarize as we go through and tell the story a bit. So chapter number 9. 
It says, Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of uh, Abiel, the son of Zor, the son of uh, Becherath, the son of Ephiah, the a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a son. By the way, pay attention to this, what it says. He was a mighty man of power who had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. So whenever it's saying that he was goodlier, there was not a goodlier person than him, that uh, all of these things about him, it's talking about he was a prime candidate. He was a good-looking guy. He was uh, nothing wrong with him, visibly speaking, right? And not only that, he was tall. And that plays a lot into what we see in the Old Testament, even when we start talking about David and Goliath. What was the thing with Goliath? It was his size, right? Nothing says that he was even a good fighter, that he was great in battle. His size was intimidating. Right. And so they would put their biggest men in the ring. They would put their biggest men up to fight. And so if someone's going to inspire the, the, the armies and going to intimidate the enemies, you want the big, good-looking guy up front, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I guess if he was big and ugly, it would work too, right? Yeah. But the people may not have a, the affection for him. That his own people may not. But the enemy might run away. I mean, if he's hideous enough. But anyway. Okay, verse 3. And the asses of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to Saul, Saul, his son, Take now one of the servants with thee, and arise, go seek the asses. And he passed through Mount Ephraim, and passed through the land of Shalisha. But they found them not. Then they passed through the land of Shalem, and there they were not. And he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they found them not. And when they were come to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant that was with him, Come and let us return, lest my father leave caring for the asses and take thought for us. And he said unto him, uh, Behold, now there is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that he saith cometh surely to pass. Now let us go thither. Peradventure he can show us uh, our way that we should go. Then said Saul to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is spent in our vessels, and there is not present not a present to bring to the man of God. Uh, what have we? And the servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have here at hand the fourth part of a shekel of silver. That will I give to the man of God to tell us our way. Uh, before in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, thus he spake, Come and let us go to the seer. For he that is now called a prophet was before time uh, called a seer. Then said Saul to his servant, Well said, Come, let us go. So they went into the city where the man of God was. And as they went up the hill to the city, they found young maidens going out to draw water, and said unto them, Is the seer here? And they answered him and said, He is. Behold, he is before you. Make haste, for he came today to the city. For there is a sacrifice of the people today in the high place. As soon as you become into the city, ye shall straightway find him before he go up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he come, because he doth bless the sacrifice. And afterward they eat uh, that be bidden. Now therefore get you up, for before, or excuse me, for about this time you shall find him. So they went up into the city, and when they were coming to the city, behold, Samuel came out against them for to go up to his place. So anyway, we will stop there for right now, and uh, just look at this for a little bit. 
last week what we were looking at, we were looking at everything surrounding Samuel and the lead up to the king. And as we come to chapter number nine, the focus shifts to Saul now. He's the main character. And uh, so Spotlight's coming off of one and going on the other. And as we're introduced to him, he is the son of a powerful and wealthy man. And the powerful and wealthy man's donkeys go astray. And at that time, a donkey would have been like the uh, the cargo van or the pickup truck of the day. It, it would have been a very valuable uh, a, a very valuable tool in the farm. Yeah. And so to have your donkeys run off would be like getting your truck stolen. Right? And so his father tells him, go out and find my donkeys. And Saul does it. So it seems as if Saul is a uh, obedient, a dutiful son, that he has uh, got a decent work ethic to him, that he is uh, he's not some heathen out there. He's not going out and drinking and partying, and uh, he's not the prodigal, right? I would have to do a little bit more searching in it. Um, but I'm thinking he would have been somewhere around 30 or 40. Oh, here? He would have been a little older. older than I was Probably, I would have to look. I could find, because he, he rules for basically 40 years, and I'd have to look at whenever he died to see how old he was when he died. Okay? And we'll get to that eventually, but I haven't looked it up ahead of time. Oh, okay. But he was older than you think he was. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Um, so anyway, he was a dutiful son. He was going out. He was working hard on the farm and everything. And as I said, he wasn't... Uh, wicked, disobedient, undependable, anything like that. He was he was a good guy, but he wasn't especially religious. He wasn't he wasn't mindful of any of the things of God. I pointed this out last week. But whenever his servant said, uh, "There is a man of God, a prophet, a seer here. Let us go talk to him." Uh, Saul acts as if that's news that he didn't have a clue the guy was anywhere around. And Samuel was now old. He had led the people of Israel. For his entire life, from the time that he had been a, a young child, people knew that he was going to take the place of Eli, that he was going to be the one that was leading the people. It said that he had a circuit, that he went around from uh, city to city throughout Israel, uh, basically interceding between them and God, right? Mm-hmm. He was the priest. And uh, even at this time, he was going to do sacrifices and hold this festival and whatnot. And it was close to where Saul was. It was still in the land of Benjamin. So basically, um, Samuel lived just down the road from Saul. Samuel had been an old man at that time and had ministered to the people of Israel for his entire life, and Saul was oblivious. So that lets you know where he was as far as uh, his spiritual interests. Mm -hmm. He had no concern for the things of God. He was happy to just work for dad on the farm. And even with that, you know, with the Jews, this is after Moses. This is after the law, right? And so there were feasts. There was Passover. There were sacrifices. There was the Day of Atonement. There were all those things that the priests would do. And the men were required to show themselves together together at the tabernacle. The temple wasn't built yet. Each year. And Saul had no clue who Samuel even was. And so there's no indicator whatsoever that he was someone who was devout and worshiping God. And once again, I, I go back to this, that God is giving them somebody like them. They are rebelling against God. They want nothing to do with God. And he says, if you want nothing to do with me, then I will give you someone that has nothing to do with me. And 
Now, this is a side note, maybe slightly political, but this is what we're facing as uh, Western nations today is that we have Ireland as long ago went away from godly principles. It's thrown away morality. The United States, the same thing. They are no longer uh, they are no longer a Christian nation. And so whenever you get rid of God and say, we want nothing to do with you, God says, I'll give you leaders who are godless. Mm -hmm. And so this is what he was doing here. He gave them a leader that was basically godless. And um, we'll see that changes a little bit uh, as God deals with uh, as God deals with Saul because it's still God's people that he's going to be leading, right? right? But anyway, as Saul is going about, he's looking for the donkeys. His servant says, uh, well, Saul says to his servant, if we stay out much longer, dad's going to think I got lost and he's going to send people searching for me. And so as a last ditch effort, the servant says, let's go talk to Samuel. Maybe he can help us out. And Saul's immediate reaction, what, what was his reaction to Samuel? When, whenever they've got to go and see the seer. What are we going to pay, are we going to pay him? Yeah. Does that strike anybody weird? Whenever we consider that Samuel's sons were corrupt, you think maybe that's something that corrupted them? This is just me thinking out loud a little bit. But if the people's mentality was, if we're going to go inquire of the prophet, we need to make sure we grease his palms. We need to make sure that we have some kind of money that we're going to give him, some kind of a bribe or a gift. Would that not corrupt Samuel's son, seeing that every time someone came to talk to Samuel, every time someone came to talk to them, that they were becoming enriched by that? And it would have become an expectation. Now, Samuel, he stayed very godly the entire way through, but his sons may not have had the same discipline, the same character that Samuel did. And so as everybody from Israel was coming and saying, okay, uh, we're going to treat God transactionally. We're going to treat him the same way as the priests and the prophets of the false gods. And would that not corrupt them too? So I wonder if Israel didn't have some of the responsibility. I know every man's responsible for his own actions. But I wonder if Israel didn't carry some of the responsibility in their attitude toward God and toward the gods of the people that was around them in how they approached God in corrupting Samuel's sons. Not just the power, but the way that they treated them, the way that, that could have corrupted them, especially from a young age. And like I said, that's just a side note. That's me looking into it a little bit, knowing a little bit about human nature. But anyway, that was their thought. And so Saul's servant, Saul doesn't have any money on him, but the servant does. Anyway, that's the guy you want to put in your monetary policy, right? He doesn't have any money of his own, but he knows how to shake down the regular guy. But anyway, so he gets the money from the guy. They go and... As they're going, they meet maidens that are going up to draw water, so it's probably the evening time. This is where Saul's looks come in because the maidens were more than happy to talk to him. They gave him details, right? Stopped and had a good chat and said, oh, Samuel's coming. There's a, uh, what is it, a feast? He's come today. There's a sacrifice of the people in the high place today. And so uh, just go right on to the city and you'll run into him because he should be coming right now. Right? And so if we follow the story on without me reading it all, uh, as soon as they came into the city, I did read that in 14, that as they were coming into the city, they ran into Samuel. Um, he says that he came out against them. It doesn't mean that he was going to attack them, but as they were coming in, he was coming out, and they just 
kind of bumped into each other right there as they were. Okay? Mm -hmm. And so it just so happened. Okay? And that's something I want you to pay attention to right here. It just so happened. He's been days searching for his father's donkeys. Who knows how long it's been since they went astray, right? And Saul and his servant has just been zigzagging back and forth the whole area, trying to find these donkeys. And it just so happened that on the right day, at the right hour and the right minute, they came together. Okay? And not only that, if we continue reading verse number 15, the Lord had told Samuel the day before, tomorrow about this time, you're going to run into a Benjamite who I'm going to make into the next or to the first king of Israel. Because mm -hmm. Samuel's been having this conversation with God for a little while about Israel having a king, right? Mm -hmm. And so anyway, God has revealed to Samuel, tomorrow I'm going to show you the guy that's going to be king. It's going to be this time he's going to be a Benjamite. You're going to know him whenever you see him. Mm -hmm. And so as Samuel is approaching Saul, God tells Samuel in his ear, this is the guy I told you about. So if we back up just a little bit, pull ourselves away from the situation just a little bit, what, what's been going through Saul's mind? Any idea what's been going through Saul's mind? Okay, Where's the donkeys? That's what he's been consumed with for days, finding the donkeys. In Saul's mind, what's going to happen is he's going to continue being his father's servant, you know, his father's son. He's going to continue working on the farm. He's going to continue building his father's assets. Whenever his father passes, he's going to inherit the family business, and he's going to inherit the father's wealth, and he's going to do the same thing as his father before him. He's going to raise up his family and his children and all of them, and they're going to continue the same family tradition. Nowhere on his radar is any of this, and it doesn't seem like he's even aware that Israel's seeking after a king. He's just doing his own thing. He's just living his life. And he has no clue that God has a plan and he's part of it. Yeah. He has no clue that as he is going looking for the donkeys, that God is using the donkeys. By the way, this isn't the first time God used donkeys. Right. All right, or not the only time. And so he has no clue that these donkeys are leading him right where he needs to go. And probably Saul the entire time is cursing these donkeys, fussing at these donkeys. He's mad at these donkeys when they're leading him exactly into God's will. Right? And so I wonder in our lives how many times there's donkeys in our lives. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, a real pain that is leading us. And it seems like it's a wild goose chase. Everything's chaotic. We're not happy with the situation. We're not happy with the way things are going, but God leads us right to where we need to be through those circumstances, and we're completely clueless about it. And so Saul comes, he stands in front of Samuel, and Samuel says, hey, I've been waiting on you. I just figured out, you know, Saul's thinking, I just figured out five minutes ago you're here. You know, we just made this decision just a few minutes ago to come and see you, and you've been waiting on me? That'd be kind of weird. And so anyway, Saul says, come with me. And, or not Saul, Samuel says, come with me. And so Saul and his servant comes with 
Samuel. They go up to where the sacrifice is to be made. And whenever they go up there, there's like 30, 40 men there doing this. And they're like the leaders and different things. He puts Saul in a prominent place. And Saul's thinking the whole time, I think he's got the wrong guy. And then Samuel tells one of his servants, he says, go get what I had you to set aside. And they bring out like a whole leg of lamb, a huge portion of meat, set it in front of Saul. He is the honored guest at this feast. He's getting this special portion. And Samuel keeps saying different things that's confusing Saul. Alluding to what God's doing, what God's plans are. And Saul is just still trying to comprehend all of this. Now, in between all of this, Samuel says, Okay, I've been waiting for you. I've got something for you. Don't worry about the donkeys anymore. They've been found. And there's no indicator that Saul has even breathed the word about any of it. He just tells him before he ever has a chance to ask. By the way, the servant gets to keep his money because they never give it to him. <laughs> right? And so anyway, they know the donkeys are safe. They know that they've been found. Uh, and now the attention has turned to Saul. And they've got this portion of meat that was set aside, all these different things. And one thing that Samuel says to Saul, if you look down at verse number 20, as for thine asses that were lost three days ago. There we know how many days it was, right? So this has been three days in, in coming. As for the asses that were lost three days ago, set not thy mind on them, for they are found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on thee and on all thy father's house? Now, what would your response to that be? Do you all, do you all realize what he just said to him? Okay, let me translate. He says, don't worry about the donkeys. They're found. It is you that all of Israel wants. You've been looking for the donkeys. Israel is looking for you. And so Saul's response in verse number 21, and Saul answered and said, am not I a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Wherefore then speakest thou to me? So how is Israel interested in me? I am the smallest man of the smallest tribe. Whenever he's the tallest man. But it is the smallest tribe. You know why it was the smallest tribe? Yes. Okay. So you remember whenever the uh, concubine was uh, abused to death and the guy cut her up and sent her on all the parts of Israel and they were furious and they came out and slew the entire, almost the entire tribe of Benjamin. Mm -hmm. And then they had to find wives for him and all those kind of things just to, to uh, keep the family going on. So Benjamin was the smallest tribe at that time, but he says, my family is the least, I'm the least, we're just, we're poor and unimportant people. But what did we read back in the first couple of verses of chapter 9? We looked at his family, a little bit of his genealogy, and we went through all those names that I botched whenever I said them. But it says that he was a mighty man of power. His dad, Kish, was a mighty man of power, and he had lots of donkeys, which was an expensive, very important part of livestock. Uh, he had servants. So does it sound like he was poor and unimportant? So why is Saul here? 
Why is Saul saying that he is so little, so unimportant? Is he being humble? I don't think it's humility because you don't find him having much trouble with humility all the way through. I'm not exactly a humble guy. Well, that would be a a good thing if he was a particularly religious guy. But it doesn't sound like he knew a whole lot of anything about the religion, the heritage, anything like that. He was just, you know, a secular guy for the most part. So I don't figure he knew that much about. And at this time, he's not even aware of it being a for a king. He says, okay, Israel's looking at me. Why? Why are they even looking for me? I'm an unimportant guy. I'm from a small tribe. Why would they want anything to do with me? So it hasn't been revealed that it's for a kingdom yet. But it seems to me like almost uh, fear. Right? And another thing that he struggles with the entire time, all the way through, is insecurity. For being such a tall guy from a wealthy family, he's extremely insecure. And we find that with his treatment with David over and over again. He's a very insecure guy. And we're going to find that later on, whenever it's time for his coronation, that he doesn't exactly show himself to be a um, a bold example because he hides. Yeah. And it's not him being humble then either. Once again, it's him being insecure, right? Right. But it does talk about how whenever he was first called, that he was little in his own sight. If you turn over to chapter 15, just a few pages there. In chapter 15, down in verse number 17, this is after Saul disobeyed and keeping the spoil. Okay? Whenever he didn't kill the king, he kept the spoil. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. And so this is whenever pride has taken over Saul, and he is chosen to do things his own way instead of doing things God's way. And Samuel reminds him and says, It was whenever you were small in your own sight that God made him king. Okay. So as we continue through this, I'm going to anyway. As we continue through this uh, story with Samuel and Saul, uh, they spend the day up on up on the mountain making the sacrifice and everything. Uh, Samuel gives Saul a few somewhat cryptic messages about what God's plans are. Gives him the extra portion there in verse number 24, showing that he had this planned ahead of time. And God had already revealed to him ahead of time what was going on. And then verse 27, and as they were going down uh, to the end of the city, this is the next morning as uh, Saul and his servant are trying to return home. As they were going down to the end of the city, Samuel said to Saul, bid thy servant pass on before us. And he passed on. But stand thou still a while that I may show thee a word of God. Chapter 10. Then Samuel took a vial of oil, 
and poured it upon his head, and kissed him, and said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? And so the next morning, same or Saul's going home, and he says, Send your servant ahead. I've got something to tell you. He anoints him with the oil, and he says, God has anointed you to be the captain of his people, the king of Israel. Now, just the previous day, Saul was just the son of Kish, hunter of the donkeys. And now he has just been anointed by God's representative to Israel to be the first king of Israel. And the only ones that know about it at this point in time is Samuel, Saul, and God. So if you were Samuel, or excuse me, if you were Saul, what would be your response to this? Mad? Okay. Afraid. Afraid? A little unsure. Why would you be mad? Yeah. I'm just curious. It's not the way he wants it. Okay. Yeah, that's very valid. I mean, a lot of times we're mad whenever God's plans for us are different than ours, right? Yeah. Sometimes that comes from frustration, from confusion, from, uh, as I said with Saul, he was... Uh, insecure it's the idea of inadequacy it's like God how can you do this to me right so yeah I can see the, the anger there disbelief it's like who is this old man why did he just pour oil on me he must be nuts Samuel done lost it but he doesn't even know that much about Samuel it's not like oh this is Samuel it's like oh it was the seer my servant told me about that just did this I wonder if he caught up to the servant and said, this crazy old man you led me to just told me I'm going to be king. What kind of nutcase did you bring me to, right? I think that would have been my response. I don't know. But God in his wisdom gives Saul confirmation. And I'm not talking about confirmation where you wear your, your wedding dress and your tux and you get... No, I'm not talking about that. But... Um, Samuel tells Saul three different things that's going to happen to him to confirm that what he has said is true, that it actually is from God. Three different things that would have been impossible for him to predict. Now, we're not talking about, you know, psyche hotline kind of things or some of these false prophet kind of things that are vague and, you know, that could happen to anyone kind of things. These are very specific, very difficult to predict kind of things. And so the three things that he says is going to happen, he says as you're going out, that uh, as you're going by specific places, you're going by uh, the sepulcher of Rachel that would have been close to Bethlehem. As you're going by that, uh, there's going to be someone that's going to tell you that they've already found the donkeys. Okay? That's uh, two men that says specifically, verse number two. And then he says, you're going to go on, onward there, and you're going to find three men that are going up to Bethel to worship, and they're going to be carrying three loaves of bread. They're going to be carrying uh, two lambs, I think it is. They're three kids, two loaves of bread, and a bottle of wine. Verse number three. They're going to salute you. They're going to give you two loaves, one for you, one for your servant. You know, you've been traveling for three days, four days now. Now, you didn't eat good the day before because they had the sacrifice, right? But he says, you're going to meet these two guys, or these three guys. They're going to give you two loaves of bread. 
take them from them, eat them. Okay? Simple things. And um, then whenever you come to this, and it's telling specific places every time. They're sending up to Bethel, near the tomb of Rachel. Uh, now they're going to say here at this hill of God where the Philistines are at, that you're going to meet a bunch of prophets. And you're going to become as a prophet and begin to prophesy. Remember, Saul has been basically irreligious all along. And so you're going to prophesy. Verse number six, the spirit of the Lord will come upon thee and thou shalt prophesy with them and shalt be turned into another man. So the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and he is going to change you. It's pretty interesting, right? And it says, and let it be when these signs are come to thee that they'll do as occasion serve thee for God is with thee. So he says, God's with you. God is leading you. Don't resist it. Just let God do what he's doing. And as Saul is leaving this, he's saying, okay, that was weird. Is there any way that old man knows what he's talking about? Well, I guess we'll find out here. We're coming up on Rachel's Rachel's tomb, Rachel's sepulcher. And lo and behold, he meets the two men. They tell him exactly what Saul or Samuel said they were going to say. Goes on a little bit further and they meet the guys and Saul's looking ahead. He's like, three guys, three lambs. Is that bread I see? Oh, that's got a bottle. Okay, well, here we go. What's going to happen here? And they salute him and say, hey, we're going to worship. We look, oh, you look like you've been traveling for a while. Have some bread. Okay, well, that's two. It's a little bit weird, but okay. And they come along to the third one. And as they're going to this one, I wonder if Saul, or, yeah, I wonder if Saul was debating on taking a different route. I mean, would you? It's like, okay, I'm going to make sure this doesn't happen. I'm going to thwart God's will. He said, go by this hill. I'm going to go by that hill. But anyway, he goes by the hill and he his heart is changed and he begins to prophesy. By the way, this isn't the only time that this is going to happen to him. But he begins to prophesy and apparently people who knew him seeing him do it and they begin to mock a little bit and they said, hey, is even Saul amongst the prophets? That's the equivalent of, I heard Jacques got religion. That's that's basically what they said. Saul, Saul's never been one to be religious, and here he is amongst the prophets. And it became like a phrase, a byword for someone who went completely uh, contrary to the way they would normally act against their nature. Basically, if someone is acting kind of off their rocker, they would say, oh, Saul amongst the prophets? You know, that, that, that was kind of the way it became a byword to him. And so all of these hap things happen just as it said. It uh, doesn't record the first two events. It just says that they happened. But the third one, it does record him prophesying. And he comes home, and he doesn't tell anyone. He runs into his uncle, and his uncle says, well, the animals are safe. And let me see here. Verse 14, it says, And Saul's uncle said unto him, And to his servant, Whither went ye? And he said, To seek the asses. And when we saw that they were nowhere, we came to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Tell me, I pray thee, what Samuel said to you. This had been a prime time for him to say, Oh, you're not going to believe it. And Saul said unto his uncle, He told us plainly that the asses were found. The end. 
But of the matter of the kingdom whereof Samuel spake, he told him not. And so anyway, one of the things that Samuel had told Saul before he left, he says, okay, you're anointed to be the king. Now, in just a few days' time, I'm going to come up to, I believe it was to Gibeah. And he says, whenever I come up there, I want you to be there and be waiting for me because it's there that I'm going to announce that you're king before all of the people. And so a few days come by. Saul doesn't tell anyone. He goes back to working the farms, doing the things he's always done. And Samuel arrives and everybody's excited because the prophet's in town. And he has announced that he is going to crown Israel's first king. So festival atmosphere, everyone's excited. And they begin casting lots or using the Urim and the Thummim or whatever to determine God's will in the matter. Of course, we already know what God has said ahead of time. But rather than Samuel just saying, hey, I've already got your guy, he says, God's going to show you the guy. And so what they would have done is either casting lots or, like I said, the Urim and the Thummim, which basically gave them yes and no answers. Okay, uh, It could have worked something like, okay, uh, we've got representatives of six tribes on this side, six tribes on this side. God, is your will on this side? No. Okay, so it's these guys. Okay, split them in half again. Is it in these three tribes or these three tribes? These three. Okay, which of these ones? And they just keep narrowing it down until they get all the way to Saul's household, to Saul's family. It may have been, uh, it may have been casting lots would have been maybe a little bit faster. I don't know. But there were different ways that they could have done it. But they narrowed it down to Saul's family and all the way down to Saul. And whenever they got to Saul, I don't know how this one worked. Uh, if they were casting lots, they'd like put names on it and uh, cast them down and whichever one was the first that came out, something like that. And so they narrowed it down to Saul, but Saul was nowhere to be seen. And so they began looking for Saul and God reveals to Samuel that Saul is hidden amongst the stuff. So there was like merchandise and uh, like some of the farming implements or whatever that was there. And Saul was hiding. That's the guy we want for king. And so I come back to what I said earlier whenever he was talking about being the least amongst the people of Israel and amongst his family. Saul is hiding at this time. And it's been revealed to him plainly what God wants him to do. He has been anointed as king. He has the evidence and the proof and everything. But he is still running from it. And so making this applicable to our lives, whenever God has a direction, a purpose, whenever he is revealing his will to us, he does have ways that he will confirm it. Okay, there are ways that he confirms what he wants for us to do. It may not be writing in the sky, something supernatural, but if we're seeking after God's will and God is leading us a specific direction and we think we know what God wants, he's going to have ways to confirm it. We don't just have to stumble along through it. God knows how to lead us. And so God made his will plain to Saul, but Saul still fought it. And, you know, we can pick on Saul and say, you know, how horrible, how ungodly he was because we know how he turns out, right? But he did the same thing that we do, right? And I've got to say, he did the same thing that I've done because whenever the Lord was calling me to preach, I was looking for more and more evidence whenever he'd already confirmed and showed me that that's clearly what he wanted me to do. And then I continued to run from it and say, no, God, I want to do something different. Anything but that. And we still run away from what God wants us to do. 
And, you know, and it's not even something like a, uh, a ministry calling or something like that. A lot of things, we'll read it in God's word. We'll read his instruction and it'll tell us clearly what his will is for us, what he wants for us. And then we're still trying to hide from it. We're still trying to get out of it or try to ignore passages or twist them around some other way whenever the Bible clearly tells us what God's will, what his plan is for us. We're like, ah, I think it actually means this. We're hiding amongst the stuff like Saul, right? Because it makes us uncomfortable. Makes it, and a lot of times it's because of our insecurities too. But see, Saul all along was depending on Saul. He was depending on himself because isn't that what Israel was doing? Trying to do it the world's way, trying to do it their own way, and leading to their own understanding, their own power. And so to be told you're going to be the one that unites the 12 tribes of Israel that are basically clans at that time, you're going to be the one to unite them, and you're going to be the king over them. You're going to lead them to battle. You're going to win their victories. You're going to take God's place. I mean, that makes it big, doesn't it? And so with all of that, Saul says, I can't do this. There's no way I can do this. This is too much. And so he tries to hide to get out of it, thinking that that's going to work. Now, if you think about this for just a minute, how, how silly it is that he thinks that he can hide underneath the, the camel's furniture or whatever it is there, the stuff that was there, and hide from God whenever God directed him exactly to where he needed to be, whenever he just thought he was chasing donkeys, whenever God laid everything out between him and home with the servants that he ran into, with the one that gave him the bread, with him having another spirit in him and prophesying, right? And he thought that he could hide. And so Samuel does some damage control and he brings... Saul out of his hiding spot, stands him in front of all the people and says, look at this big guy. Isn't this a great king? And they look at him and they cheer and they say, yes, this is great. He's tall. He's good looking. He's strong. He smells like donkeys. Right? And so he says, this is the one that God has chosen to be your king. And so they march him to the palace. They put the crown on his head and say, no. He goes back to work. Goes back to his father's house. Goes back to caring for the donkeys. Right? And nothing changes. Now Samuel gives them a bit of a a bit of a speech here as well. In the end of chapter number 10, he goes through and tells the people of Israel uh, he goes through some of their history. And we see this happen several different times through Scripture. But he goes back and tells them of all the times that the Lord had delivered them. Uh, you go to verse number 18. And said to the children of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of all kingdoms, and of them that oppressed you. And ye have this day rejected your God, who himself saved you out of all your adversaries, or adversity, excuse me, and your tribulations. And ye have said unto him, Nay, but set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes, 
and by your thousands. And so this is before uh, he goes through the whole thing of selecting Saul. But he tells the people of Israel, God has led you so far. He has protected you. He has provided for you. He has done all these things so far. And you said that he wasn't a good enough king. You said, set a king, a man over us. Let's get about this business. And there's it down to Saul. They, they crown him king and everything. Verse 24, there is none like him among all the people. And they shouted and said, God save the king. And that is something they still do to this day over in England, right? Mm-hmm. And so verse 26, Saul went home to Gibeah, and there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. But the children of Belial said, How shall this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. And so with that, it seems like there was a big ceremony, a big celebration, and then nothing. He had a handful of men. This was going to be his innermost circle. But they went to Gibeah with him. They went home with him. And he just went about doing what he'd always done. We started in the next chapter. He was out on the fields. He's plowing. He's doing the work in the fields. And it doesn't seem very kingly, does it? And so even whenever he makes him king, it takes time for God to bring him to the place of king. And even whenever all the people are like, yeah, he's tall, he's big, we wanted a king. And even then there were some people that said, but we don't want him. And there were people who mocked him. There were people who said, how shall this man save us? We don't have any faith in this man. This isn't the king we want. And so even with that, it wasn't this big victory. It wasn't some kind of a big change. Saul was probably expecting something more profound than what happened. He left the whole thing and he's like, well, I don't feel any different. How's this going to work? How am I going to become a king? What's the next step? What do I do? Well, I'm going home. And the guy said, well, we're coming with you. Okay, but I don't know what you're coming for. It says the Lord touched their hearts. And he says, well, I'm going home. They said, well, we're going with you. And these guys said, well, we want nothing to do with you. And he goes home. And he's out in the field and he's working, he's plowing. He's like, okay, King Saul, here we go. How's he going to become a king? And so we come to chapter 11. And I need to wrap up. But we come to chapter 11. And there is an attack against them of the Ammonites. And Saul is out plowing in the field and he hears people mourning and weeping and lamenting. And he says, what in the world's going on? What happens is the king of the Ammonites come up against uh, Jabesh Gilead and says, we are going to take you captive. We're going to wipe you out. And they said, no, please don't. How can we, how can we get out of this? We'll be your servants. He says, okay, I'll let you be my servants if I can pluck all of your right eyes out. And they're like, well, let us think about it. That's a little extreme, isn't it? Well, why their right eye? Well, if they are uh, going to be in battle, how can you be an archer? How are you to be a swordsman? How are you going to fight missing one eye? So they're going to make them slaves, basically, and they're going to mutilate them and take all of their stuff. And this is a danger to all of these people because they didn't have a king before. They were just tribes. They were small bands of men. There was no cohesion. There was no uh, national army, nothing like that. And so they said, well, give us a few days to see if we get anyone to help us. And so the guy says, okay, sure, why not? Because I don't think you're going to. Gives them some time to group up, get their armies and whatnot. 
And so they send out throughout all of, are they, the, the word comes, excuse me, they, they're mourning, they're crying, and it comes to Saul, and the Lord touches Saul at this time. Remember, he had a new heart, right? He had a change of heart. And whenever he hears this, he says, basically what David does later on, is there not a cause? And so he takes the animal that he's plowing with, hacks him into pieces, sends the pieces throughout the country, and says, anyone that doesn't show up for battle, I'm going to do this to your animals. And next thing you know, he has an army of over 300,000 men. And the people of Jabesh Gilead says, okay, we're going to surrender to you tomorrow whenever they hear that Saul and his army is not very far away. And so the people that are going to attack them, the Amorites, basically let down their guards and, okay, they're surrendering tomorrow. And then that night, Saul and his men come and attack and slaughter all of them, give them victory. And Saul gives God the glory for this. The people of Jabesh are... Uh, are rescued. The people of the nation of Israel have come together under Saul with God's leadership. And they have been united into one people and they have respect for Saul. And so whenever Saul stands up and he is now their leader, he's defeated their enemies, he's given them victory, he has proven himself to be a king. Some of the guys are looking around saying, where's those guys that said we wouldn't have Saul be leader over us? We're going to go and kill him. Saul says, no, not today. Today is a day of praising the Lord. Today is a day of victory. Let's not shed any more blood. And everybody comes, and this is basically Saul's coronation day. They go down, they take Saul, and they say, okay, now Saul is king. He was anointed. He was presented. Now he has been uh, basically coronated. And now he is their king. Okay? And all the way through this, Point out to me any one place where Saul planned it or tried to make any of it happen. There's not a single place because God orchestrated it all. And he brought Saul to the throne. And Saul, as I said, he was not a godly man. He was not one that uh, was seeking after God, but God was able to make his will known. He was able to make it come to pass in spite of those things. And he proved himself to Saul repeatedly and showed that he needed to rely on God to lead the people and that God could empower him. He could give him everything that he needed if he would just put his trust in God and allow God to be the ultimate king. And if he would submit himself to God and follow God, then God could continue to lead him in that way. Okay? In, that was basically chapter 11, chapter 12, because I'm wanting to get on, on to this. After all this happens, Samuel stands before the people and says, I've never done you anything wrong, and I have been faithful before God to you until this day. I'll continue leading you. I'll continue praying for you. I'll continue doing all these things. But you have chosen to set me and to set God aside. You've chosen your king. Now Saul is your king. And he challenges them down in chapter 12, verse number 13. This is our final thing. We'll be done. It says, Now therefore, behold, the king whom you have chosen. By the way, the king whom ye have chosen. Now the king God chose for you. This wasn't God's idea. God gave you what you wanted. Now therefore, behold, the king whom ye have chosen and whom ye have desired. And behold, the Lord hath, hath set a king over you. 
If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of God, of the Lord, then shall both ye and the king that reigneth over you continue following the Lord your God. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as it was against your fathers. And so as we, we finish up tonight, Saul's the king. Samuel's getting ready to kind of take a step back and let Israel move forward in the direction they have chosen for themselves. But before he takes a step back, he tells the people of Israel, God has given you what you want. And you messed up in requesting it, but God is not going to throw you away. He's not going to cast you aside. If you will fear the Lord, if you will follow after him, you and your king, then God is going to take care of you. He's still going to prosper you. He's still going to protect you. But if you reject God, if you resist his word, you resist his will, then God's going to trouble you. He's going to bring it against you. So now you have your choice. And it sets the... Uh, sets the stage for the rest of the book of Kings. And whenever they have times where they are seeking after God, trusting God and following him, and they have godly kings, they have times of peace, prosperity, things going on like that. And whenever they put God behind their back and say, we want nothing to do with you, we're going to bow down to idols, we're going to put uh, statues in the temple, we're going to do all these different things, then God allows famine and he allows... Uh, invasion. He allows all these different things to happen. And so he tells them up ahead of time, if you'll continue following the Lord, the Lord's going to take care of you. You turn your back on the Lord and the Lord will leave you to your own devices and he will let the natural consequences come your way and punishments come your way. Mm -hmm. And so you have a choice to make still. And so that is still applicable to us today. It's not a peace and prosperity gospel. But if we live our lives to serve the Lord, we can trust him with whatever direction it comes in. Uh, you look at Saul and how God ordered his steps all along. God can, it's, Saul wasn't a special case. Yes, he was a king. But can God not do the same thing in each of our lives? Can he not make things fall into place? Can he not put us right where he wants us at? And even more so whenever we're seeking after him. It's not always going to be the way that we think it's going to be. Sometimes we're hunting after donkeys and we have no idea that God's leading us to a place. You know, we might be afraid and we might be hiding under the stuff whenever God's trying to do something because we're afraid that God's not able, that God can't do this, that God can't make this happen. And so we're shaking in our little hiding spots, right? But God is able. And we see it over and over throughout Scripture that God can take care of us, that God can provide for us, that God can lead us. And we just need to trust him and allow him to order our steps. We need to continue looking to his word and allowing it to guide us. And if we'll do that, we have nothing to worry about. So, anyone got anything? Glad I stopped asking questions. Okay, so Lord will next week we're gonna see Saul go off the rails. <laughs> we saw his his rise to the throne and now we're gonna see his fall. So nothing else to go to the part. Dear Lord, we come to you today, thank you for your blessings. We do thank you for this time that we've had to look at your word and 
Lord, for the encouragement it's been for me, Lord, just seeing how uh, how inadequate Saul was in the way that you were still able to use him, Lord. And Lord, I know it's a shame the way that he, uh, the, the direction that he went and the way that he turned away from you, Lord. But Lord, if, if we'll just allow you to work in our lives, we'll just look to you, Lord. We know that you'll take great care of us. Lord, I just pray help us learn the lessons from these guys, Lord, as you seek to lead and to uh, direct us as you would lead and direct them if they would be if they would allow you to. And Lord, we just thank you for all that you do. Thank you for being so good. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.